Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com coming to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK and uh, today I'm very pleased to welcome back to the programme Dr Joshua Rasmussen who joined us back in 2019 to talk about his book How Reason Can Lead to God. Now if you'd like to listen to that, that's TMR number 229 which I do recommend Um, but today we're going to be talking about his latest book published this year, 2023, which is called Who Are You Really? And more of that in just a moment. Joshua Rasmussen is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Azusa Pacific University in the US. He is the author of Defending the Correspondence Theory of Truth and Bridge of Reason, co-author of Necessary Existence and Is God the Best Explanation of Things? And co-editor of A New Theist Response to the New Atheists. He lives in Azusa, California with his wife, Rachel, and their five children. And I say that like that because I'm quite sure the last time we spoke, you had four children. So uh, congratulations. (laughs) Welcome to the program. Thank you. Yes, I'm so excited to be with you. Yeah, we've continued to multiply persons on the earth, which is the topic of the book that we're going to discuss. Persons. Absolutely. Yes, persons. Okay, so who are you really? And uh, it can kind of sound as if when you say persons, you're just talking about, you know, human beings. And um, who are we? Are we apes? Where do we come from? No, no, no. It's it's not, not that kind of thing. Um, it's a much deeper question than that. Um, who are we really as persons? What does personhood even mean? So it's a very, very good book. I highly recommend this. Very much like the last book, actually. I find it very helpful and extremely thought provoking. And I know that's a term that can often seem um, insincere, but I don't mean it that way. I I really mean that. It forces you to think in really deep ways, in some unusual ways at times, but uh, guides your thinking step by step through some very, very deep issues indeed that uh, have to do with the philosophy of mind, really. Okay, so the title is Who Are You Really? The subtitle is A Philosopher's Inquiry into the Nature and Origin of Persons. So, Let's get a bit of an introduction to this. What are you doing with this? What do you mean by this inquiry into the nature and origin of persons? Yeah, thank you. So, you know, we use that term person, and I like what you said about how we might initially associate that with human persons. Mm. But, you know, from science fiction shows like Star Trek, where you meet other sentient beings who can talk and think and they have emotions, and there's a way in which maybe what we would do is we would think about these alien beings as different in form or capacity, but not necessarily different in category. Like they're the same kind of being fundamentally as we are, at least with respect to some of these powers to feel, uh, to be self-aware, to um, contemplate questions. You know, these are sort of special powers that we have. And my goal in this book is to lead readers into what I call a cave of consciousness. The cave of consciousness is the place to explore the nature of consciousness, the nature of the beings who can be conscious, the nature of who we are most fundamentally. And that's my driving quest is to really try to uncover our nature in the most fundamental way. So it's not enough to just describe our bodies or our genes even, because I want to know even more fundamentally, what is it that we are that we could even have bodies, that we could even have genes in a description that can unify maybe an explanation of what we are, as well as some of these other characters that 
would be personal. Uh, even if, let's say, God exists and we say God is personal, what does that mean for God to be personal? Mm. What do we mm. have in common there? And so that is my goal. And I like what you said about there being a depth to this because there definitely is a depth to this, oh. including in my own journey. So mm. as I was writing the book, I really took this as an opportunity to rethink about these topics afresh and building off of a career of working in the philosophy of mind. But I kind of just wanted to start from scratch, get all the papers on the table and just have a fresh look at the literature. And I myself uh, stretched my mind into new places in the course of my research for the book. Mm-hmm. And this comes through towards the end of the book where I give my theory, which is not the theory that I had going into the into the project. So it's definitely been a journey for myself. And, yeah. and then my goal is to lead the reader to be empowered in their own journey as I go on my journey. That's absolutely true. That was my experience reading your book. I was on this journey too. I was struggling all the time to understand what sort of overall vision you had for who we are and who we are in relation to ultimate reality. And so I was at the end thinking, how do I put all this together? So I created my own vision. I'll share that with you at the end and we'll see how those two things match up or don't match up. (laughs) Um, It's interesting that you say, you know, you go into these really deep questions. This seems to be a bit of a theme with you because you've thought about what is truth and what is time and what is existence. And now you're you're touching on this, uh, what is consciousness, what is personhood and all wrapped up in that, of course, what is free will? You know, this is really deep stuff. Um, How come you're, you're so interested in these kinds of very deep questions? Two reasons come to my mind in this moment. Uh, One reason is that sometimes these very familiar things like our thoughts, our own existence, our feelings, they're so familiar that we, we mistake the familiar for the insignificant. We don't realize just like how profound Mm. it is that reality gives rise to thoughts. How can there be thoughts? Uh, As an undergrad, before I got into philosophy, I was a computer programmer. I mentioned this before a show. And in those days, I would be programming worlds. I would design all the rules for those worlds. But one thing that would be very challenging to do as a programmer would be to design a world where the pixels that are displayed on the screen literally have thoughts, hmm. literally have feelings. And yes. this very question about like how you can create a world with thoughts and feelings yes. already inspires the realization that this is very profound, that you exist, that your thoughts exist. It's it's profound. And so that's why I'm so interested in this. And then second, I want to go deep because if we can have a a more fundamental analysis, it's kind of like laying the foundation for a building. A lot of people are maybe building within somebody else's foundation. And sometimes those foundations are not themselves very sturdy. They're not necessarily built on truth. Hmm. I like to go to the, the deepest explanation I can because that, for me, empowers sight of everything else that's built on top of the foundation. And I guess it's just kind of my personality in a way. Like I feel like if I can understand our existence, our thoughts, our feelings, how we came to be in the most fundamental way, what's the most fundamental possible description of who we are, that's going to give me insight into more specific questions about how we should live in this world and those specific questions then it's like there's light that shines on our steps for living our lives if we can understand the nature of the foundation of our steps Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. And in doing that, I noticed that you're very keen to clear away some of the the baggage of terminology 
terms like uh, you know materialism, dualism, and idealism, and these isms that we've we've heard about. But each time you're very careful to say, yeah, but maybe we don't know exactly what those things mean. And you, <laughs> yeah, I mean, why are you doing that? Um, presumably, you're trying to make this book as approachable as possible. Is that part of it? That's a big part of it, but there's another part as well, mm. which is that these terms have been how do I want to put this? They've been utilized in a kind of warfare over worldview. And anytime there's a right. kind of war warfare over worldview, there's mess. Mm. Okay. There's mm. yeah. artillery uh, everywhere and minefields. And so what I've discovered in the mess is that people are using these terms in very different ways. Mm. Um, as a rule of thumb, those who would use the term, let's say dualism. Okay. Yeah. If they're a dualist themselves, they would tend to have a wider range of meanings for that term hmm. than those who are not a dualist right. and say, hey, dualist is yeah. false, right? Yeah. Same yeah. thing with materialism, same thing with physicalism. And what I discovered is that it seems like all the terms have a meaning that can, in a strange way, be overlapping uh, each other. Hmm. And that just leads to confusion. So that's why I want to start from scratch. Let's get to the basic building blocks yes. so we can get clear about what's at stake. Absolutely. I'm, I'm going to ask you now to, uh, in, in a moment actually, to clarify a couple of terms, because I think those things might get in the way if we don't clarify them. But I just wanted to say this can sound, I think, to some people as, as if this is, this is uh, obviously this is very deep, and so therefore it's going to be impenetrable. But that's not the case. You write the book to, you know, both the intelligent layperson, and you explain everything as you go along, and actually the expert, because you do go into these deep areas. Um, but it is for everybody who is prepared to actually engage with this material. It is approachable. I will say that. Um, so please. You can start yeah. from scratch. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Don't be put off. <laughs> Don't be put off by this. It repays careful reading for sure. Okay. Now, um, a key term that I would like you to explain before we really get going with this is non-mental substance. You tend to avoid using the word matter. And instead, you prefer to talk about what we would normally call matter, let's say, as non-mental substance. What's going on there with that? Can you clarify that? Yeah, so two thoughts here. So first on the term matter, mm. um, that term also has a variety of definitions depending on who you ask. Yeah. And as you know, toward the end of the book, I actually offer a theory of what I call mindful matter, where the base reality could be called material in some sense that some physicists are describing but that this materiality doesn't exclude a mind-like nature from the base of material reality. And so in light of this, I want to be careful that at the outset, if I'm talking about where mentality comes from, and I want to contrast different views, so there's one view that has some form of mentality, is actually foundational. The foundational nature of reality includes some kind of power to think or to feel or to intend. Mm. And I want to contrast that with the idea that the base of reality is fundamentally mindless mm. and, and leaving open whether this fundamentally mindless thing could be characterized as a substance or as something else in some way, but basically to create a contrast between two fundamentally divided worldviews, mm. the mind first view where mind is fundamental and primary, and then a mindless first view. Mm. And so that term non-mental is just to be a contrast to the term mental, which of course then leads us to ask the question, well, what do you mean by mental? <laughs> um, yeah. Thinking of mental as, as basically a form of, of consciousness, that which you experience in your own mind. Yes, yes. 
Okay, so mental seems very clear. This non-mental, okay, let me let me try again at this. Um, so would this be like saying, okay, we think we know what matter is. Oh, I've got this table in front of me. Um, it's all very, very familiar to me. And I think I know what kind of thing matter is. It's hard. Oh, I can see it, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. But actually, no, I don't really. And even if I turn to the physicist, at the end of the day, they'll probably say, oh, well, it's all energy. And then I'll say, well, what's energy? And they'll say, well, that's the ability to do things. And then I'll, somebody else might say, well, maybe ultimately it's information. Yes. And then we're getting into very strange areas. And, and really, we don't know what it is. It has a big question mark against it. Um, and what if ultimately matter itself is some kind of window into an ultimately mental reality? Now, if that's the case, then we may be thinking completely the wrong way to think of matter as a kind of dead substance. All right. So maybe it's a some kind of mental substance in some way. Am I getting close to your thinking there? That is so beautiful. I love how you put that. You definitely cool. put that better than I just put that. So thank you. <laughs> You're yes, very generous. Exactly <laughs> yeah. We take we take the material world for granted as if we understand that mm. of course it's fundamentally yeah. built out of these billiard ball particles mm. that are mindless. Mm. And that that is not what the physicists are, are saying um, about the fundamental nature of matter itself. And matter itself mm -hmm. is a window into a reality that many physicists are saying may well be mental yeah. in its nature or mindful. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating stuff. Not all physicists. No, no, no. Sure. Yes. This is, of course, a matter of controversy. Right? Absolutely. Yes, yes. Fascinating. Okay, well, the yes. second term here, there are only two that we need to clarify. The second one is going to be substance. And again, it can feel as if it's stuff like some sort of goo, some sort of putty. You know? um, but actually, you use it, correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you tend to use the word substance really as almost like an unknown, almost like a question mark that could have properties, that could have something about it. Um, could you lead us a bit more towards what the word substance means when you say it? Yeah, so this term, I'm using it from... Aristotle. So in Aristotle's work, uh, he's famous for articulating a notion of substance. And philosophers have worked out various theories about what substances are. But in the Aristotelian line, the basic idea is that a substance is a subject of properties or it's a bearer of properties. Hmm. Uh, for example, if you have a rock and that rock has a certain size, the size of the rock you might think of that as constituting the form of the rock or the formation. But the rock itself is that which has the form, okay? Mm. So you could imagine the rock changes form. As you mentioned, like putty or clay, these are things that have various forms, but they aren't themselves the forms. They're the subject or the bearers of form. Mm. So if you think of a substance broadly as that which has the form, and that's how I'm thinking about it in the book, then that opens up a an application of that term that goes beyond clay or even spatial um, substances entirely. So you could have mm. psychological forms, the form of thinking is a form of feeling that belong to a substance, a subject of psychology, um, even if it isn't clay, if that makes sense, not mm. literally like in a spatial position. Mm. In fact, one of my arguments in the book is that spatial contents of reality themselves grow out of the experiential states of a mental substance or a conscious substance. Hmm. So the spatial reality is not even a fundamental substance. In fact, hmm. to be honest, uh, all my cards on the table, now this isn't required for my big thesis in the book, I've come to doubt that there are any substances that are 
even spatial. That instead, the spatial contents of reality are actually forms of um, conscious experience. Hmm. And that those belong to a substance that is a subject of psychological form. Hmm. Wow. All right. Um, deep already. <laughs> Sorry. Um, all right. Let me, let me try. Well, let me try. I can hardly resist. <laughs> um, this is inevitable, but let me try uh, to come back at this substance thing with my own little example here. Okay. So it's this, it's this stuff, as it were, that is the bearer of properties. Okay. Let me take the example of an apple. So I, I look at an apple Well, I eat an apple and it's, it's nice and red and it's round and it's juicy. And so I might then go all scientific about it and say, well, okay, but it's as this diameter and it's made of these kinds of chemicals. And then it's made of these kinds of atoms. Then I might go further in and I say, okay, well then it's uh, actually a bunch of quarks. And then I go even further than that. I, and I find that it's beginning to get difficult to say, well, what actually is this? I'm I'm finding information about it. It's like kind of adjectives about it. It's got redness. It's got size. It's got quarkness. It's got atomness. It's got, but what is it? If there's nothing there that has all these properties, if there's nothing ultimately that is red, what am I talking about at all? So this substance denotes this kind of what is at the core of this thing. Is that right? Is that the idea? Yes. Yeah, that which has those properties. Yes. Another helpful way to think about this is imagine you're having a dream. Mm. And in the dream, you see an apple-like image. Now, the question is, does that apple-like image have a substance? You know, is there a substance that's the bearer of the apple-like image? Mm. And you might think not. You might think that what you're actually seeing is, in a sense, a state of your own mind. Right. Um, The apple-like image is a cluster of properties that fill out imagery in your own imagination and so this connects up to what is the nature of the material world you know is it the material world itself fundamentally anchored to non-mental substances which is an open possibility or is it as i've been coming to think that the fundamental nature of the material world is more like the fundamental nature of mental imagery um (laughs) not necessarily in your own mind but perhaps in a more universal mind Mm. Yes, indeed. Okay, well, we'll leave that just for a second, um, because we're going to come back to the book in a moment to talk about this powerful set of tools you have. I think people will be glad to know there is a set of tools that we can use to get into these kinds of questions. We'll come to that in a moment. I just wanted to uh, just ask you, um, like I did last time, tell us just something about your background. You were brought up as a Christian, I believe, but then you had some kind of challenge to your faith and that led you into questioning and ultimately into philosophy. Can you just briefly sketch out that journey? Yeah, absolutely. So I remember lying on my bed. I was a senior in high school, looking up at my ceiling fan, feeling depressed and worried that what I would hope to be true is not true. Uh-huh. And what would I hope to be true? Well, I would hope that I have value, um, that I'm real, that when the atoms of my body scatter, that I would continue to be uh, real Hmm. and that I would be able to have a bright future that doesn't just end with death. Um, So those were some of the thoughts and worries I was having, questions I was having. And what I realized in that moment was that there was a difference between what I hoped to be true Hmm. and then what is true. Those aren't the same concept. Now, maybe what I hope to be true is true, but it's also possible that that it isn't. (laughs) And that, that led me into a kind of a quest, which I'm so grateful for because It turns out, Julian, that reality is just larger than any of us have a map for in our own minds. Mm. And I've become convinced that the fundamental nature of reality 
includes beautiful treasures hmm. that are inspiring, that hmm. are greater than the limited concept that I had, hmm. but that I couldn't even come to discover those treasures in my state of limitation and that there's always more to find. And so it opened up uh, an ongoing journey to find more and more and more. And I've been encouraged to just face reality and to see what there is to see. And I'm continuing to update my, my thoughts about things. But let me just say that where I'm at right now is in a position of, I almost want to say like, it's just, it's better than I had imagined. It's even greater than I hmm. thought. Um, <laughs> cool. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's wonderful. Yeah, I mean, this idea of finding greater depth, um, I don't know um, whether this is a good example or not, but just one thing that popped out at me is a strange thought that uh, I don't think I'd had before encountering your work at all, but the idea that you can know something about a distant planet in another galaxy that has never been observed, and yet I can know something about it just through the power of reason. That's it, you know, yeah. just We know there are no square circles. So I know that on planet X, that's never been observed, that there are no square circles on there. Now, that might sound very trivial and ridiculous, but actually that's something I know about the other side of the universe. Never really thought in those terms before. And if it's that powerful, presumably reason can tell us a lot of other things as well. Absolutely. It opens the door mm. for sure. Yeah. Yes. Let's open the door then with this book, with the tools that you've given us. Um, introspection is the main one. You have three main ones, reason, introspection, and scientific method in a very broad sense. Yes. But as I say, introspection is the main one. What do you mean by that? You don't just mean navel gazing, do you? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm thinking about this as a kind of conscious awareness of states within one's own mind and in one's own experiences. Very easy examples would be like right now you're having certain thoughts. You might be having certain feelings as well. I imagine you probably are. <laughs> and, uh, and you have a kind of access to your thoughts and to your feelings that I don't myself have over here. So I can hear your voice. And when I hear your voice, I'm decoding what thoughts you're having, maybe even some of your feelings that you're having from what I'm hearing. Mm. I'm decoding, I'm, I'm inferring your thoughts and feelings because I don't have that kind of introspective access. Whereas you have that kind of direct, this is what I mean by introspection, a kind of direct access of your own inner conscious states. Mm. Or let me just for neutrality say some access, whether it's direct or not, it's actually part of the book later to investigate the nature of your access to your own conscious states. But I do think it is a direct access that you have. So that's one of the tools that I use to investigate mm. the nature of who we are. And like the tool of reason, it's very, very, very powerful. I think people don't realize how much you can know about the nature of reality, not just yourself, but the nature of reality, because when you start using introspection, you can start noticing things that point outside of yourself. For example, you can notice that two plus two equals four, and you can notice that the truth of two plus two equals four has a kind of necessity that doesn't depend on your own awareness of it. Hmm. You notice all this through introspection, and this gives you a clue that the nature of reality includes abstract principles like two plus two equals four that go beyond you, that transcend you. And you can discern this through the power of introspection. So this is mm. one of the mm. tools mm. that we use along with reason and, as you said, the scientific method. Yes. Well, it's certainly good to know that two and two equals four in a world in which we're quite often told that two and two equals five. But never mind, that's another, that's another issue. Um, <laughs> yeah. But um, isn't this prone to error? You know, if this something is of myself, I'm introspecting, I'm using my powers, looking inside myself well, I'm prone to error and all kinds of things. Isn't that going to be really a dodgy thing to be using as a source of truth? 
Yeah, this is such an interesting question to me because I feel like there's a certain irony in that some of our most powerful tools are almost viewed with the most suspicion. Hmm. I mean, if there's anything that I think that I can know with certainty, it would be that I have thoughts and questions yes. and feelings. Yes. You know, it, the big question for philosophers is how can you know that there's an external world with certainty? Hmm. Because you might be in the matrix, you might be hallucinating, <laughs> you might be in an elaborate dream, right? That's the big question. Hmm. How do you know anything out there? But it, there's something about a reversal, I think, um, and part of this has to do with the advancements of science that make use of our empirical senses. By empirical, I mean our ability to see with our eyes. We can make measurements and we can quantify the data that we're collecting through our five empirical senses. And because we've advanced scientifically, I think there's, rightfully so, an emphasis on the value of these empirical senses about the external world. But what's missing, though, is the recognition of these tools to detect consciousness within. And if I could just add one more point on this, hmm. I actually think that you can't even know that you are observing the external world unless you rely on introspection to be aware of your own observation. If you're observing a tree, you see the tree with your eyes, hmm. but you are aware of your seeing of the tree. Yes. So Aristotle asked this question, by what sense do you sense that you're sensing? Okay, by what <laughs> sense do you sense that you're seeing the tree? Yes. That's introspection. Yes. So I don't think you have to have 100% reliability of introspection to have some reliability. And so that's, of course, worth emphasizing. Many people emphasize this right away, that you don't have to have perfect, infallible, introspective powers to get some data from introspection. But I almost don't want to overemphasize that because the irony is that I think that introspection might be the tool by which you can have the clearest sight hmm. of truths hmm. about thoughts and feelings hmm. through direct awareness. Hmm. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's very, very powerful. Um, and there are sometimes in the book where you invite us to recognize that we are conscious and then to be conscious of the fact that we are conscious and that's a strange experience, but you can do it. You can become acutely conscious of the fact that you are having a conscious experience. And that draws you into yourself to find out more about yes. what was the nature of your feelings and your thoughts, which we'll get onto in a moment. I'll just ask you a bit more about this reason thing. Um, I'm wondering why you stress reason as a tool. Isn't it obvious? Why even mention reason? Sometimes people have personally written me emails and notes telling me that they are skeptical of the power of reason, hmm. especially when using reason to think about uh, big questions. Oh. And I think part of the worry here, and I appreciate this worry, yeah. is that philosophers are maybe notorious for spinning webs of reason that are not anchored to concrete observations. Hmm. And because of that worry, I want to address that. And I want to talk about how reason can be a tool that we can use to analyze our observations. Mm. So I do agree that I want to tether reasoning to observations, which I'm going to use introspection to make some observations, as well as data from science. Um, all of that will be put on the table. But then that's why I take some time with this, is because of the personal emails and notes that people have offered me. I see, yes. Um, it, it's almost like if I start using reasoning to get to big conclusions, that feels scary to people. That reminds them of yeah. the spinning webs devoid from observation. So that that's why it takes some time. Right. I see. Yes, I get the picture. Um, perhaps scientific method might be a red flag to some people because, you know, science isn't a neutral endeavor, is it? And especially in the present culture, you know, it tends to favor what we what we normally call materialistic explanations of things. So isn't that a problem to defer to science? 
this is exactly, I love this. this is exactly parallel <laughs> to the worry about reason, right? It's not neutral. Mm-hmm. It sort of pretends to be neutral, right? But then you're using the tool of reason. Uh, same thing, you're using the tool of scientific method. The way I'm thinking about science here is coming up with hypotheses to explain a body of observations right. and then using reason to make some predictions, further predictions from those hypotheses and go out and collect more observations to test those hypotheses. Okay. Yeah. And I use the term science in, in that broad way so that it can include mm-hmm. the wide range of data. It's not limited just to empirical observations. Okay. Um, and so the way that I'm kind of addressing that worry about using science in a way that's not neutral is just to acknowledge, yeah, we're all human beings here. So let's just do our best. A lot of this comes down to attitude. You know, what are we aiming for? <laughs> are we aiming for the truth? <laughs> you know, the, the tools that we use cannot cure us from our attitudes. If we're aiming for the truth, the tools can empower us to get to the truth. If we're aiming for something else, then we can use those tools for right, something else right. as well. So, Okay, yeah. So th- those tools aren't a, a restriction. It's not like uh, you're using a particular method, like often people talk about methodological naturalism. So you're not using a tool like that right, within right. science, which might actually strangle what you're trying to do. You're, you're using a, a method in the broadest sense of forming hypotheses and testing them, yes. In the broadest sense, you got it. Okay, great. Okay, so we have those tools. Um, the most interesting one, perhaps, because we're less familiar with it, well, we are very familiar with it, but we don't think about it very much, is introspection. So we'll keep that in first place, perhaps. Um, so in the first part, you go through all these things that we're familiar with, uh, feelings, thoughts, sight, will, everyday things. The nature of you is part one of the book. So as conscious beings, we experience these things. We also experience having a body. We experience a sense of self. Far too much for us to discuss here, of course. I'm going to pick out a few things, and I want to start with feelings. You have a chapter entitled Your Feelings, and you have a weird section in that called How Not to Make Sand Sad. (laughs) Now, and you literally mean gritty sand, and you literally mean our experience or the experience of being sad. And you go at great pains to say, look, sand, how is that going to be sad? Those two things don't seem to fit together. Okay, I think we can all see that. And maybe that's going straight into this invitation to introspect. We can all see that. What on earth are you doing here with this? How <laughs> not to make sand sad? Okay, so I'm feeling such excitement right now because... <laughs> I even just love the fact that we can all, you said that we can all see that. Hmm. Great. I do believe that we can. In fact, it might feel weird. Like you said, it's a weird section. Like, why am I going into such detail, (laughs) meticulous detail, trying to make a case for the challenge, let's say, the construction challenge of building from little grains of sand, knocking them into each other to build the first person experience of sadness. So there's two things going on here. One thing that I'm trying to do is I I am trying to display a certain kind of clarity that I think can be clear. And I think that by separating the clear from the unclear, it can give us a guiding light to go into this dark cape of consciousness where everything becomes controversial very quickly. Hmm. So I want to have the clearest starting points to extend the light further. And related to this, what I'm trying to do is then extract the principles by which I think this can be clear and then drawing out some further implications. If sand can't be sad, then could something be sad just by changing its shape 
or just by changing its molecular structure. Mm. And what's interesting, Julian, and this is my second thought here, is that many philosophers of mind and some scientists also working in, on this topic recognize an interesting implication from the premise that sand can't be sad to the inference that arrangements of carbon molecules in a brain can't be sad either. Right. There's a link there. Yes. There's a bridge there. Yes. And so many have followed the bridge in the other direction, either arguing, in fact, even just recently on social media, a number of people expressed with a certain kind of confidence that sand could be sad. Rocks could be sad if you arrange them in a certain way. Mm. Uh, because of this inference, it, part of it is the brain can be sad, and the difference between the brain and rocks is not a difference in category. And so rocks and sand arranged in a certain way could also be sad. And so I actually mm. think that that inference, that bridge between these scenarios is correct. So <laughs> it's just you can travel across the bridge in two different directions, if, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so what I'm doing there is I'm trying to start with something very clear so I can make that bridge slowly, step by step, and then try to figure out what are the implications of this. Okay. I essentially agree with you. It's a bridge. It's quite a thin bridge, isn't it? With a big chasm to cross. Yes. I mean, I could think to myself, okay, right. I could try to make a brain out of sand. I could um, get a model of a brain and I could pat all the sand into that shape and I could go to lower and lower levels and try to get as close as possible to the idea of neurons or whatever. But I'd never do that with sand, of course, because it's not the right stuff. Okay, so then I could go to, like you were talking about carbon atoms or, or whatever, and I could use biological molecules and I could try to piece those together. And okay, maybe I would end up with something close to neurons. And if I got close enough, I think a lot of people would say, well, maybe that would in fact be sad. Maybe that stuff in those particular configurations would lead to sadness. What makes that an illegitimate move yeah. in your view? So it could be legitimate if it is the right stuff. But here I just want to make a distinction here between shifting in shape or quantity versus shifting in category. Right. So if the shift is merely a shift in the shape or in the quantity, then one part of the argument here is that uh, there, there's two kinds of related arguments. I, I like your metaphor. It's a thin bridge and we can fall off quickly on either side. So we have to go very carefully. Hmm. Um, but but one argument is that we don't see, or let, let me just say it from my perspective, I don't see how merely changing the number of particles from two to three would thereby change the entity from unconscious to feeling love, for example. I don't see that. Yeah. Um, and then now, interestingly, you say, sorry, sorry, yeah. interestingly, you say, I don't see that. You keep saying, I don't see, I don't this, see and that. I don't see that. So this is the introspective tool you're using at this moment? Yes. Um, I'm, yeah, that's right. I'm noticing okay. that I'm not seeing. Mm. Um, I, and then I also actually notice, and this takes some analytical surgery, and this comes later in the book, mm. the second part. But there, there are reasons that I have for thinking that I actually can see. It's not just that I don't see ah. that the change in quantity is not enough. I think that I actually can see that it's not enough. Right. So these are two different claims, but they're related. Um, and each one opens up motivation to cross this bridge. So if I could just elaborate just a little more here. So going back to the pile of sand, um, if I add one more grain of sand, I think that that mere quantitative difference in the number of grains of sand 
is not relevant to account for the categorical shift from being unconscious to conscious. Hmm. And this takes some work to really draw this out because this is a controversial point. If somebody says, well, once we get to neurons, now we do have the right stuff, then I'm going to suggest that if we have the right stuff, that's because the neurological manifestation is itself an extrinsic, let's say, window or pointer to a different category of substance that then hmm. we're talking about that mindful matter that we talked about at the beginning of this discussion, that there's a special kind of matter then. Call it matter, call it whatever you want. It's a special kind of substance that is going to be categorically different than just grains of sand. Okay, so um, I does think... that make sense? <laughs> it does. I think, I think we... Yeah, we're coming back to the point I think we talked about matter. What is matter? Um, exactly. You, you don't really like emergent ism <laughs> i get that impression anyway the idea I do of a form we, we just need the right material to get the emergence yes 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 so i'll come back to that in a moment um one of the things when i was reading this is i was reminded of leibniz and i wondered if you were influenced in this or i, I wondered if you were sort of writing out a fuller explanation or a fuller justification of leibniz's mill example in the monadology Yes. Um, can I just read that for people? Because they may not have come across it. And I think it's a lovely example. Yeah, that, that's in, it's yeah. in the book. So yes. yeah, please um, do. Yes. I've forgotten. Was it in the book? Okay, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. I got it directly from in a copy of Monology. Um, yeah. Right, so this is number 17. Um, it must, this is Leibniz. It must be confessed, however, that perception and that which depends upon it are inexplicable by mechanical causes, that is to say, by figures and motions. Supposing that there were a machine whose structure produced thought, sensation, and perception, we could conceive of it as increased in size with the same proportions until one was able to enter into its interior as he would into a mill. Now, on going into it, he would find only pieces working upon one another, but he would never find anything to explain perception. It is accordingly in the simple substance, and not in the composite, nor in a machine, that the perception is to be sought. And that seems to me that you have taken that intuition, which I think so many of us have, and you have gone into great detail justifying that intuition. Yes, um, this is yes. so perceptive for you to bring this up right here. And if I may, because I do have mm. this on page 204 of my book, if I may just okay. read, I have that exact quote line for line what you just read. Uh -huh. And then this is what I say right after. Um, so I say, this is the right time in our inquiry. Now, this is in part two. So this is after we did the hard work of analyzing thoughts, feelings, sight, <laughs> your own self, all this stuff. Yeah. I say, this is the right time in our inquiry to appreciate Leibniz's illustration. Uh -huh. His illustration makes use of two premises. One, perceptual awareness is real. And by the way, I mean, there are many philosophers who've come to doubt that there's real perceptual awareness because of this hard challenge of explaining it. So that's the first thing. And then second, that the first person aspects of awareness, you know, what it's like from your own first person perspective to see a blue sky, that those are irreducible to merely third person aspects of matter, quantities, shapes. And so I say, if, if just a few more lines on this in the chapter on perception, I explained why I think, these premises are discernible via introspection. This takes work, though. I mean, it takes yes. work. You mentioned being conscious of your own consciousness. That is not automatic. 
Mm-hmm. This is why I invite the readers to almost come into a little bit of a meditative state where they're mm-hmm. actually doing the work of collecting some observations for themselves, including the experience of their own experience. Mm-hmm. Because you need that. That's important data. So I say my argument was that by introspection, you can be aware of your own field of awareness. So awareness is real. That's the awareness of your awareness, right? Consciousness of your consciousness. Furthermore, by introspection, you can see first-person aspects of contents of your awareness, including thoughts and feelings, which you can see are not identical to third-person aspects of, of matter, piles of sand and rocks. If so, then there is a challenge constructing uh, there's a the, there's the challenging construction question here. How can purely blind, unaware elements of reality construct, ground, explain, or produce first-person awareness? Mm. And so here I'm just summarizing the challenge later in the book, then I offer a solution to the challenge. But you got it, absolutely, Leibniz's mill right. draws out vivid detail, kind of what's at stake here. Yes, and I suppose we're less familiar with a mill, um, so perhaps we could substitute a computer, which of course is much more complex, and a lot of people think, well, maybe computer technology will become conscious one day, etc. But I mean, if you go in, if I were to imaginatively go inside my laptop here and have a good old look around, just like Leibniz says, you know, I'm never going to say, oh, that's a little bit of sadness there, that's a... That's a little bit of feeling going on there, and oh, there's a bit of free will going on there. It's just, I can see that that's not the right place to look for that. Um, you said that some people say, well, let's just get rid of the problem altogether. So these are the eliminate, eliminativists. Is that, have I got that right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah a very difficult word to say. So this, somebody like Daniel Dennett, for example, will say, well, you know, our brains, they've been shaped by evolution to simplify complex tasks. So we've got loads of tiny robots, biological robots inside our brains, and they give us this illusion of being conscious, illusion of being a self. That's what it is. It's an illusion. So we can just eliminate thinking about it. Why is Dennett not right about that? That's his intuition. That's his introspection. (laughs) Yeah. So I think he is right about something here, which is that um, he has this kind of famous article about what's called qualia, which is the kind of what it's like from the inside, what it feels like to to smell coffee or to drink lemonade, sort of what that's like experientially, what it's like to listen to music. And he talks about kind of our ordinary folk beliefs mm. about this aspect of consciousness, this kind of, let's say, qualitative aspect of consciousness. And his view is that these ordinary beliefs about consciousness don't really match on to what we understand about brains from our empirical sciences. Mm. And so part of what's going on here is there's a kind of emphasis on empirical knowledge or scientific knowledge, Mm. and that this is giving us the primary data of reality, you know, how brains work. And if the qualitative aspects like the, the smelling of coffee, I've got my coffee cup here, and it smells a certain way, okay? And it's like, well, is that smelling a certain way literally a characteristic of a neuron firing? Is it a shape or is it a function of, of shapes or is it a pattern of particles? And I think actually Dennett has an insight here that if that qualitative aspect were real as it sort of appears in first person experience, then it wouldn't really fit into or characterize neurological activity. Hmm. And I actually think that is correct, but then this motivates him to eliminate right. that aspect of reality. And honestly, I can really appreciate that, it, mm. um, that kind of motivation. It, it invites us to kind of reconfigure 
maybe our worldview. You know, if if the mindless matter, let's say, is the primary stuff of existence, then there is this great challenge of seeing how to fit the first person experiential states. If I may add one more example, um, Alexander Rosenberg, he's a philosopher of science, very highly respected. I love his work. And he's got this book, An Atheist Guide to Reality, where he talks about how our descriptions of thoughts, now this isn't just feelings here, you can be in a limitivist with respect to thoughts or feelings um, or both, but he, he ends up eliminating thoughts because thoughts as we ordinarily think of thoughts, if I can use that language, <laughs> from our first person experience as being about things. And, and he says that aboutness is not part of the fundamental nature of physical reality in his view. And so then this again leads him to eliminate the phenomenon that I I want to explain Hmm. because, and again, I think it's because there's an insight here, a challenge in seeing how it could be explained in principle in terms of the vocabulary of physics. Yeah. Do you think with all this, there's a kind of hangover from the old logical positivists? Is there a sort of, you know, well, we can only know anything about the world if we we do our experiments and find out. And if it's not within that world, then forget the highfalutin philosophers, you know, they're not talking about reality. Is there a sense of saying, well, let's just eliminate all that? Is it a hangover? I think in the popular sphere, that might be more of my impression. Right. Um, Among the philosophers of mine who are working on this and publishing on this, I would definitely say it's more nuanced than that, um, that yeah. it's connected, but more maybe mm. by degree mm. than category, if that makes sense. Yes. Okay. Um, all right. So uh, thoughts were mentioned. So let's have a go at those. So these are, hmm. well, what are they? We have thoughts. <laughs> we have thoughts. Or do we? Or hmm, yeah. are we just computers? Uh, we have a, a robot vacuum cleaner. It's got algorithms. It seems to do fairly intelligent things. Does it have thoughts? Um, mm, well, those thoughts don't seem to be, if they are thoughts, can I call them thoughts? I don't know, but they don't seem to be about anything. Um, aboutness. You have this strange term, aboutness. In fact, you've even written an essay called About Aboutness. This seems to be a key idea with regard to real thought. Can you tell us what aboutness is and how it uh, illuminates what thought really is? Yeah, aboutness, again, is one of those familiar things. You know, you have a a thought about cheese. (laughs) It's hard to even ask the question, what is it to be about the cheese? But once you ask the question, then you start to see, oh, the familiar is actually pretty significant. How did aboutness enter into our reality? Now, initially, many people hearing this might think, "What's, what's the puzzle? I mean, we can have maps. A map of California is about California. And you don't even need consciousness for the map to be about California. Somebody just creates the map and has a key that represents which parts are representing which pieces of the land, right? Hmm. And and this is a kind of mind-independent reality. However, in the map case, the aboutness is derivative. It has derivative aboutness. And what I mean here is that the key that tells you which symbols on the map stand for which items, that key depends on people having thoughts about the symbols and what they represent so that the symbols themselves have meaning derivatively in virtue of thoughts having meaning and aboutness in a primary or or non-derivative way. So the big challenge is then how do you account for the non-derivative aboutness? And I think this is one of those things that's hard to define. You recognize. You recognize the reality of aboutness. And now the question is, how does that fit into the reality of 
matter and, and um, atoms. Yes, it's really weird, this one, because, um, I mean, I'm looking at a sentence. I've got these notes here in front of me, and I'm looking at these sentences on a screen, and these sentences are inside my computer. I'm pretty sure that the computer is not conscious of this, not thinking anything at all. Okay, so is that sentence there about anything if I don't look at it? I mean, is it about anything if nobody'd written it, if it'd been generated randomly? It doesn't seem to be about anything until I look at it, which means it suddenly then does involve my subjective apprehension. I'm thinking. Um, before that, it's just a sentence, uh, yes. but it's not about anything <laughs> in yes, that at, sense. At least, <laughs> yes, that's right. It's not sort of about anything on its own, right? Mm. Um, the original maker of that sentence gives it a derivative aboutness in virtue of its representing that maker's thought, yes. which has direct, you know, aboutness in a basic way, if that makes sense, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and by the way, the aboutness here is something we recognize in first-person conscious awareness, which isn't to say that we can't create robots to act yes. like they think about things. Like ChatGTP, for example, can act like it's having its own thoughts. Mm. And that's fine. You could even call that a thought in some functional sense, if, if you want to use that language. But it's still missing that first-person experiential acquaintance with non-derivative aboutness. Yes, yes. Right. Uh, it is difficult stuff, really fascinating stuff. And again, I'm going to say at this point in, in the interview, please do get this book and read it and actually engage with the material and do some of these exercises to try and almost train your, your introspective organ, <laughs> which we have, yes. um, to recognize some of these deep things. Um, I think inevitably with an interview like this, we're just touching on some of these things. It's impossible to go into as much depth as is necessary, really. Um, one thing I can't leave alone here, I think it's so important, is will. Um, I don't want to go into huge detail because we did talk to Dr. Angus Manouge several years ago on libertarian free will. So we don't need to go into all of this. Um, but to you make it clear that neither determinism nor indeterminism are really compatible with libertarian free will. We do, in fact, experience this. I believe I experience free will every day. I'm certain of that. So we need some other kind of explanation. If it is real, neither determinism nor indeterminism explain this thing or account for this experience. Yes. Where do we go? Where do we go? Yeah, the big challenge, as I see it, is to understand how we're not mere puppets hmm. of mindless particles pulling the strings. Now, I mean, think about this. Imagine there's just like, just to illustrate, like mindless uh, marbles that are rolling around, and then imagine that those mindless marbles are casting shadows, and you're kind of like a shadow uh, that's cast by the mindless marbles. If you're the shadow cast by the mindless particles, it's hard to see how you can make a real difference by your will in the world. You are a mere puppet. Mm. And like you said, it's not a matter of determinism versus indeterminism. Whether the marbles act deterministically along one single track that the laws of physics necessitate, or whether they act in sort of a chancy or probabilistic way. Either way, they're the puppet master, <laughs> Julian. How can we control anything if we're controlled by mindless particles in yes. motion that make us who we are? Yes. And so this creates a huge challenge to understand how we could have any will to make any difference at all. And, and by the way, like many people working on this, they recognize the challenge and for some of them, this is their reason for thinking that free will is an illusion. Hmm. 
that, that mm. free will can't be really real. We have the feeling of free will, maybe to help us survive, but we can't actually make things change because everything's already determined by the microphysics of our brain, by the chemical reactions that are themselves determined by laws of physics. Mm-hmm. You know, like when the axons fire, that's just governed by quantum events that mm-hmm. you have no control over. So you're just a mindless puppet. Yeah, you see, the thing with that is, um, you know, I'm invited by those who argue such things to take their theories seriously. And yet, you know, my position is and has been for a long time is that I'm sort of, I'm so certain, uh, this comes to this idea of direct awareness that you talk about a lot. I I am so certain that I do, in fact, exercise at least some degree of free will. I know people might say, well, it's an illusion. No, no, but just a minute. You know, I'm, I'm trying to say now I am more certain that I do, in fact, exercise free will, than I am certain of any attempt to explain that away. Does that make any sense? I mean, I'm Absolutely. I'm invited by somebody to take their explanation seriously. But to do that, I've got to exercise something that is of a higher order, even to begin to take that seriously. And that higher order is this free will that I experience that I'm so certain of that nothing else can match that certainty. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, and especially if there's another model that doesn't make you a puppet. So I think part of the problem is mm. if you sort of take it as your framework that the mindless marbles, which is just the metaphor for the, the particles, mm. uh, mindless particles or fields are your puppet master. Mm. If that's your framework, well, then that's going to challenge the intuition that you have free will. Yes. But look, that's not the only model sure. on the table. This is the whole right. point of my chapter is actually to flip the framework and say, hey, you actually can account for how you have free will. Okay. Mm. And I, yeah. I itch to add here that I don't even think that there's any hint of a conflict between your intuitions here, if you have the intuition that you have the power to choose, and what empirical science is giving us. Exactly the opposite. The mainstream developments in neurobiology and cognitive science and some of the recent literature on positive psychology and neuroscience, the mainstream consensus among scientists working in these fields is that our minds have powers over our brains. That's why there's the ability to heal. Like It it matters. The mindfulness techniques can actually heal your brains. Mm. There's all this empirical evidence that we do have mental powers Mm. that make a physical difference. And this then leads back to the question, well, what is the nature of those mental powers that can make sense of this, right? Yes. I think part of it is that this is a multidisciplinary inquiry that brings together many different considerations so that many people who are looking at, let's say, the empirical science, they're not necessarily plagued by this puppet problem that I just described about the mindless actors pulling the strings and making you a mere puppet. They're not necessarily plagued by that um, because in part, I think it takes analytical surgery to unpack that. Hmm. But many of them will say, hey, we have, of course there's mental causation. Many many of my friends will say, independent of their background worldview, will say, of course you have powers to choose. Um, And this is supported by the science. And so for me, all this does is it, it invites a paradigm shift. Yes. Um, instead of having the mindless marbles as the puppet master, rather, you're actually deeper in. You, mm. this is, okay, so if I could just put my card on the table here, this is, this is my current view. This is my working hypothesis about how this works. When you form an intention to send a note to somebody 
And it's part of your intention that they feel encouraged by your note. And that intention then leads to actions of you going and maybe getting a note, maybe not an electronic note. You're going to go buy a card and actually handwrite this. You want it to be very meaningful. My view on this is that your intention is formed out of you, a certain kind of special substance that has a mind. Hmm. And that the results of this, the consequence of this, is a change in the nature of matter or in, 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 in some layer of matter, depending on how we characterize matter. Yeah. Um, one way of thinking about this is that, that the, the quantum field actually registers your thought and it propagates upward into changes in chemical reactions into your brain, leading to your actual activities of your hand and your body. So that, in fact, you're not a puppet of mindless particles. It goes the other way. The particles are in part, not in full, but in part under your control. When you form that intention to love somebody, it makes a physical difference to the world and that this is measurable, that this is something scientific, that we can we can measure these differences in the brain. Um, and people have been doing this. Yeah. And so that you are, in a sense, a puppet master of some aspect of physical reality. Mm -hmm. You use the word substance in there. So we were eventually getting to that point yes. because that coincides with what Angus Manoj said. Um, he talked about substances and conscious substance. And this is where you're leading to, that we are, in our most fundamental selves, we are, we are or share in a substance that can enjoy consciousness yes and that kind of drives a wedge between this well deterministic causes or indeterminism you know well, all of that doesn't allow for free will I know, but, but in between there as it were wedged in there is this notion of something deeper still which is this notion of a of a substance which we talked about at the beginning so not a blob but that which can bear properties it's an x at the moment in our discussion an x that can bear properties but the properties of consciousness and feelings and thoughts etc Okay, that leads us to self. But before we do self, I have to ask you about body and brain. Um, because I found this the hardest part of the book, really just because I think in such concrete terms about my body and my brain. Um, you seem to be moving away from a concrete or a quantitative view of our bodies towards something more descriptive or qualitative, as if... Um, let me try another way. Our, our bodies, we experience them as things that we can touch and they, they occupy space. We're supposed to experience them that way. I'm touching it now, I'm patting my arm. Yes. But perhaps at the most fundamental level of reality, they're more like qualities or properties of something else. Now, am I driving at this the right way? Properties of this conscious substance, this self that you're arguing for? Yes. Correct me if I'm wrong. Am I getting anywhere near what you're saying? Absolutely, yes. Um, and to kind of illustrate this, um, it's difficult to illustrate because every term is slippery and loaded. Mm. I, I want to talk about dreams, but even the word dream feels like, well, it's not really there. It's hmm. it's not very real. It's not concrete like your body. Your body is really there. But you, have you ever had a dream, Julian, where you had the experience of touch in your dream? Have you had a dream where you – I've had these dreams where I, I – I think so, yes. Yes, in the dream itself. I think so. I've had mm. dreams where I – somehow I knew I was dreaming, and I was touching a wall in my dream. I had the experience of touching a wall. 
And I had this dream where there was a buffet of food. And somehow, I don't know how this happened, but I knew I was dreaming. I knew the food wasn't outside of my consciousness. And yet I enjoyed the food so much. There was mint chocolate chip ice cream. And I remember thinking, I keep <laughs> eating this because I'm dreaming and there's no end to this. And every yeah. bite just tasted so good. It felt real. Mm. It felt as good as when I'm awake. Um, but obviously it wasn't part of an awake consciousness. It was part of a private mental consciousness that included touch, included the tangibility of a spatial arranged wall. Even my own body was appearing in the dream. Yeah. Uh, not exactly. didn't look exactly. I, in, one, in one episode of a, of a dream, I looked at a mirror and saw my face. The face looked a little different than when I'm awake. But there I had you know, something that I could touch it. I could feel the touching. <laughs> so I would argue that even tangibility, even concreteness, these are actually forms of consciousness. <laughs> and we just take them for granted. We think of consciousness as kind of abstract and ethereal. But even the notion of being concrete is part of consciousness itself. So then I would say, no, consciousness is the most concrete of all realities because it underlies all realities, including the very experience of touch and tangibility and concreteness. And, and I, I feel almost hesitant to say this yeah. because I, I'm worried about how this might appear and all the implications. And I, and I want to say, well, this does not imply no. that everything's ethereal or everything's just a dream. It's almost like I want to reconfigure even what our concept of dreams are. Dreams are more concrete than we've understood them to be, in my view. I, I absolutely agree with what you're saying there, and I perceive that problem as well. Um, so when I share with you my vision of what you're saying at the end, I will address that. Yes. That, wor cool. that worry that uh, maybe we're stepping into some sort of area of, I don't know, Christian science or something here, an illusion, yeah. illusionary world sort of thing. No, no, no. That's not what's going on. Um, all right. That was difficult. Okay, let's get to the other difficult one here, which is self. All right. We seem to be drilling down. You In your book, you drill right down. You sort of um, carve everything away. You know, so we're not this, we're not that. But we, we have these thoughts. We we have consciousness. We, we have feelings that the we, we the, there's a we there. We have these things. Yes. This is the substance that, that bears these properties. We eventually get to this notion of this conscious substance, or rather a substance that can experience consciousness. And this is your calling self. Now, you say this is not the same as a soul or a Cartesian soul. Let's just stick with that. Why is that not a soul? Well, it depends on your concept of a soul. Um, yeah. If we stipulate a definition of a soul, a kind of minimal definition, where a soul is whatever it is that is the subject or the bearer of your psychological properties, and it is, as it appears, in self-awareness, first-person self-awareness through introspection, um, then I'm, I'm actually happy to just use the term soul. Um, but ah. my worry here is that people have these connotations of the word soul that I want to just be careful not to add more to my theory, right? That, no. that there's no connection to body um, mm. that is ethereal, these sorts of things, right? Right. Yes, I suppose that takes us back to that problem. If you say the soul is spiritual and the physical world, well, that's physical, and therefore 
how can those two things be related? That brings up that whole problem, which right. which maybe doesn't even need to be there if we are actually asking the question more deeply. Well, just a minute, we're not even sure what matter is in the first place. Absolutely, so, yes. So let's avoid using soul in that sense. Now, this is really interesting because I wonder whether you're tipping back to Leibniz again here. <laughs> I wonder. With his concept of a monad um, with respect to human beings. Um, I don't know whether there's something of that because let, let me just yeah. run this by you. Yeah. Um, you say that um, on 176, page 176, you say you are the point in your point of view. And then on page 179, you say the real you is not your thoughts, feelings, intentions, or bodily state. In fact, at the end of many chapters, you say things like, you are not your feelings. You are not your thoughts. You are not your choices. You're not your value. You are not your body. You end up thinking, what are we then? Yeah. Uh, so let me just carry on here. Um, you also say, uh, these things comprise your cloak. The real you is deeper in. When you look under the cloak of your consciousness, you can be aware of yourself. So even consciousness, it seems, is, is not really the real you. So it seems to remind me of this sort of very minimal point or monad that Leibniz talks about. Is there an influence there? Are you getting close to that? <laughs> yeah, yes, very perceptive. Um, okay. I, I would just maybe hesitate hmm. to say more than I need to. Um, like, for example, do you have parts? Are you composed? <laughs> Um, I do later argue that if you are composed of parts, you are still prior to your parts. So your parts aren't who you are most fundamentally. You are more fundamental than any particular parts. Um, and that yeah, yeah. is pointing in the direction of a kind of a, a kind of mo- monadic right. being. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. I'm not saying you're you're just copying what he said or anything like that. It's just that I immediately sure. yeah. felt a connection. It's definitely pointing in that direction. Yeah. 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 You see, now I, let me. I'm going to quote this because I found this really helpful myself. Um, if I go back to the monadology here again, I'm not saying this is what you're saying, but it just reminds me. Um, number twenty, he says, um, we experience in ourselves a state where we remember nothing and where we have no distinct perception, as in periods of fainting or when we're overcome by a profound dreamless sleep. Okay. Um, now I experienced once going under anesthetic and I was, I was having my wisdom teeth taken out <laughs> and um, I was completely aware of nothing, absolutely nothing. I mean, there was no time as far as I was concerned. And I had a very strange experience because when I came back out of the anesthetic um, and I was violently sick and all that, I felt as if I could have been asleep for a billion years or one second um, I felt as if I was being born anew. I mean, I had no sense of identity for a probably, well, I don't know, 20 seconds or something like that. And gradually I came back to myself. Now that's the question. I came back to myself. What, what, what's myself in there? Um, there was no memory. There was no consciousness. There was, was nothing. But there must have been something that continued. I, I remember speaking to the surgeon actually before I went under the anesthetic. I said, well, what, what, what happens to my soul? And the surgeon said, oh, what happens to it when you go to sleep? I'm not sure that was a <laughs> taking my question seriously. But going back to Leibniz here, he says, um, in such a state, this is this sort of deep sleep state, um, in such a state, the soul does not sensibly differ at all from a simple monad, a simple point of something that is you and gives you your identity over time, irrespective of pretty much anything else, consciousness, thought, feeling, anything. So this is where I saw the connection. Yeah. And of course, he said, then says, well, this is not a permanent state and the soul can recover from it. And so the soul is something more than this monad thing. So I, th- this, this helps me to think, well, 
you know, otherwise I'm thinking, did I die and then come back to life again? Um, or am I to say that my body is myself? That continued, but that doesn't really work either because my body changes. So that's that's not the essential me. So it has to be something that's unchanging but continues whatever happens. And Okay, so that's why I was thinking of that. Yes, yeah. and if I could add something even to mm. your question, you know, like what happened to you yeah. when you were under, I think it's so important to distinguish between being a self and being self-aware. Right. Because you don't have to be aware of yourself to be you. Mm. Right. And so you could be you. Now, it could be even that you had self-awareness, but then memories were wiped. Um, Bernardo Castro makes arguments like this, that Hmm. he actually thinks that you are always conscious. Um, You never lose consciousness. And so he has to, of course, deal with, well, what about states of unconsciousness? Well, no, you actually are conscious, but you just don't remember that. (laughs) But let's just assume that um, it's not just that you don't remember it. Um, and that's not the only thing he says about that, but mm-hmm. one, one consideration, but let's just say, no, 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 you are literally just completely without any consciousness at all. Still, that doesn't mean that you're gone. No. Right. And I think that mm-hmm. this is important because it's almost like we associate ourselves like with our costumes, not just our bodily costumes, but our psychological sort of like egoic personalities. Um, and we're so familiar with that, mm-hmm. that we think that that's who we are so that if that goes away, we get all afraid that we've gone away, mm, mm. but I actually think that we're we're deeper in that we're greater than anything that could be fleeting, um, like a body or even a psychological profile. Yes, all yes. those things can be changed in and out, and that when you are unconscious, assuming that you were literally without any consciousness, you're still there. Mm. You're the bearer, the substance, the thing that has your consciousness, and so I think that's an important distinction that gets lost. Even among experts working on this, I, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts and and there is a question about what's the relationship between you and consciousness and people talk about pure awareness and mm. pure consciousness. Mm. And, and, and even there, I don't often see this additional distinction, at least as a conceptual distinction um, between the consciousness, which is a state, and then the substance or the thing that has that state, the, the being. Yes, Absolutely. I've recently been in conversation with a, a Hindu friend of mine, and um, we have differences of opinion, as you can imagine. <laughs> but, you know, we're trying to get close to each other without compromising what we believe to be true. And I've come as close to the notion of absolute consciousness. And I thought, okay, I can say, as far as I'm concerned, that's God. And then the notion that I somehow, myself, am an instance of individuated consciousness, let's say. I got close to that notion. And I was sort of working with that notion. And I thought, well, okay, that's me. I'm so like like an individual consciousness. Mm-hmm. And then this anecdote from my past bothered me. But then I was, I ceased to exist because I am absolutely convinced again, you know, with introspection, <laughs> I'm convinced. Okay, maybe I forgot all my memories. I, I don't believe that. I, I believe that yeah. As far as many people would, would be concerned, what, but for my bodily existence, I was dead. So it can't be consciousness that accounts for me ultimately. Now, I know a lot of people could say, well, it's precisely your body. You see, your body hadn't died. But then you say, one of the examples you have in the book is from Star Trek. You know, you, you, you could be, um, you get on the transporter. What if the transporter goes wrong and you get a couple of you, a clone of you appear on the, uh, the planet? Um, suddenly there are two of you. Which one's the real you? It doesn't seem like the body actually defines you either. Um, there's got to be a real you. So you see what I mean? I'm coming to this point of thinking, no, there's got to be something that is this point. As you say, this is a substance. I think I'm agreeing with you. Yeah. Um, 
Shall we get to the really difficult stuff? <laughs> this wasn't difficult enough. <laughs> I would love to. This is, I feel like, a very valuable point in mm. our conversation. And I imagine it being quite interesting to many of your listeners because we're talking about big questions at the intersection between large scale yes. traditions. Yes. Uh, um, you know, you mentioned your friend, mm. uh, your Hindu friend. Um, and I also have friends who would describe something that I think intersects very, very beautifully with, I think what we're going to be talking about next, which is kind of this grand uh, proposal mm. about how <laughs> we are all connected and how we could have all come to be. And I think that sometimes what happens is in our own traditions, we language things in different ways and there can be surprising overlaps. Mm. I also think that there's room for discovery within our traditions that could actually help each other. And I kind of see this book, especially the end of the book, as being something that can, I don't want to be like overly dramatic about this, but I feel like it, to be honest, can help us to see how there can be a more beautiful, a greater, deeper understanding within our own traditions that actually link up with other traditions yes. in a very helpful way. Yes, and I, I absolutely agree with that. Um, I think through these conversations that I've had with this friend, I've got some taste of that. I think years ago, I would have been suspicious of having these kinds of conversations because I would have thought that it would have been necessary to compromise my Christian faith in order to have that kind of conversation. And I found that not to be the case, actually. I found that one can go really deeply in conversation talking about you know, the nature of being and some very abstract things like that. And yet you find, although you do agree on a lot of things, you can still retain your, your faith distinctiveness, both sides of that conversation, and remain absolute friends and stay true to what you believe. And yet you seem so close in so many ways, you know. Yes, it's, absolutely. This book, I think, helps with that process as well. Um, okay, so let's get to this ultimate question of how we we as selves might relate to, and I mean relate in the sense of not relating, getting on with, or being in love with, or well, maybe that's part of it, but that's not actually what I mean at the moment, but relate to in terms of of our being, what is the relationship between our being and the ultimate being? So this is the million dollar question, isn't it? So what is fundamental reality? Some people say the ground of being. Um, Paul Tillich, famous theologian, talked about the ground of being in traditional theistic terms. We'd say God, um, who sustains all things. I, I tend to prefer that way of talking. Um, so this is the same question, really. This ultimate reality, how are we related to this ultimate reality? Now, you have this thing you call a source substance theory. How does our relationship at the deepest level as selves connect to the ultimate self of all reality? And how does your source substance theory help us with that question? This is the hardest question of <laughs> yeah. my career. Right. And I'm, I'm still um, pondering it from different angles. So e even in the book, I offer what you might call a narrow range of options um, within the dark walls of the cave of consciousness <laughs> and the dark walls. I, I feel those dark walls using logic, reason, science, introspection to kind of remove some theories that I think aren't going to work. Um, you know, we talked about the problem of getting beings like us who can make choices by our will out of mindless ingredients. So I end up making arguments that the fundamental reality is not going to be mindless. Mm. 
But that doesn't solve every problem because one of the things that I seem to notice through introspection is that I can't just by like imagining a character in my mind create a real first person conscious substance or self that exists out of my own mind. Right. <laughs> so, well, no. Mm. Right. I mean, it, like I've had <laughs> dreams where I, I don't know why I have these very vivid dreams where somehow I, I come to know that I'm dreaming. Not always, but sometimes I do. And I had this dream. I was talking with my wife and my dream. Well, I knew I was dreaming. So I was like, explain to her, you know, you're not actually there. You know, I'm going to wake up and you're going to be gone. You're not even going to remember any of this. And one of the things that's sort of obvious to me is that however I think of that character, and some people argue maybe that's a kind of manifestation of myself in another form. So I'm like speaking to myself in another form in my dream. I'm not actually creating an, a conscious being just by thinking of a image in my mind, right? No. I'm representing a conscious being. And so this leads to a question many people have asked me, how if there's this construction problem of constructing consciousness, there's also this construction problem of constructing conscious beings, selves, mm. beings like us. How is that even possible? Could God with all power create a conscious being out of rocks? Mm. To me, after I've thought about this and analyzed this in different ways, I've come to see this as sort of like asking, could God with all power construct a square circle? I have doubts about whether that's a possible construction. And Mm. so if you think of God as having the maximal possible power or being the greatest being with all possible powers, that's not going to give God impossible powers Mm. to do impossible things. Yes. And so this leads me to that question, right? Well, what possible construction of me would even be available even to God, even to source substance that's mm. unlimited mm. Uh, in its in its powers. How is that even possible? And so I sketch a narrow path through the cave of consciousness. Uh, would you like me to share that with you? Um, would you like me to answer this question or should we just leave it hanging here? The I hardest. <laughs> I don't know. I'm wondering whether I should at this point, move to the vision that I said I would share with you. Because maybe that will do it. Maybe that'll bring my thoughts in as well as your thoughts in. Maybe you can comment upon it and say where I've gone wrong. I would love that. All right. Um, I'm trying to draw two things together here. I'm trying to draw what you've said about us being these essential selves that could experience consciousness and... We have this question, how could God or the ultimate being create selves like that? We still have that question there. We also have the phenomenal world around us. We seem to have these two things still. We have selves, and yet we have the phenomenal world. We have bodies. We have brains. And this is still here. This isn't all sort of, the acid hasn't come along and got rid of this. This kind of dualistic question is still there. Neither of those are really answered yet. So let me share this vision with you. It's a kind of test to see whether I've seen the same way as you. So this is a model. Yes. Now you you talk about idealism in the book and you give the impression that you, to some extent, veer towards that. I do too, a personal idealism. So here we go. I'm saying God is the mind that grounds all being. That mind thinks or projects. I think I prefer thinks. I like the idea of thought here. That mind thoughts, thinks the phenomenal world into existence. 
uh, which then exists as a super complex structure of thought information. Now, you mentioned that in the book, the idea of information. Mm-hmm. And William Dembski, in his book, Being as Communion, which we've talked about before on the podcast, seems to be moving a bit in that direction as well as thinking of information as fundamental. So we have thoughts projected by the divine mind. Um, now, those super complex structure of thoughts, which we ex- experience as reality and we're supposed to experience as reality, those are real. <laughs> they are real thoughts. Um, uh, they are, in fact, the only reality that we can experience. You know, it's not like the Matrix. We can't get out of this. There's nowhere else to go. In the Matrix, you can get out into the real world. We're not talking about an illusion here. This is not an illusion. Um, this reality is not dependent on us. If we all cease to exist, or no, no humans existed anymore, that reality, this complex structure of thoughts would still exist in the mind of God, you see. This is very much like George Barclay. However, and this is what I've struggled with for quite a long time, really, and I think your book has helped me with this, if I've got you right. Um, these divine thoughts this complex structure of divine thoughts that we call the phenomenal world, they do not account for us as conscious selves because we, if if we were the thoughts, <laughs> let me try this again. If we as conscious selves were the thoughts of the divine mind, then we would in fact be like puppets that you were talking about earlier. We'd be like cartoon characters and therefore everything about us, including our feelings, our thoughts, our decisions, would just be the thoughts. They would just be the decisions of the great animator, the great puppet master, you know. There would be no free will. There'd be, we would just be inside a cartoon, the thoughts of the creator. So that's not the full picture. So I think it does account for something, these divine thoughts. But the selves that we're talking about here, the selves at this deepest level of being, have to be subtly different. They, that that is we, at the deepest level of being, are made of the same substance as the divine mind. Now, that divine mind has the potential, maybe the eternal potential, the, the, the everlasting, ongoing potential for consciousness and free will. We may share in that insofar as we are of that same substance. We, we, we would have that potential for consciousness and free will. Now, I'm going to make this even more complex now because I'm going to say, but I immediately start to worry about the question of, well, does that mean then that we are God? And of course, I immediately don't like that idea. This seems to be moving over into a more Eastern way of thinking, and I reject that. And I'm thinking, no, no, we have to be still individuated in some way. We may share in that divine substance, but we're still individuals, even though we share that substance. So we are individuated, and I'm thinking here in a logical sense, you know, almost like, um, you know, if you imagine that the divine mind is like a hard drive on a computer, and we could say that that hard drive is the whole of reality, but the divine mind in his self-giving, almost kenosis, you know, giving of himself, says, I will make a partition, a logical partition within my myself, my hard drive, and that individuates the who I am. I share in that substance. I'm part of the hard drive. But what's most important about me, most significant about me, is my very individuality, which is the logical distinction that is made on that hard drive. And that's not an illusion. That's real. That's real. It's a kind of revised dualism here, you know? Um, And then I see this essential substance that I share, this sort of individuated self, as being given permission, as it were, by God to interface 
with the thoughts of God that I was talking about earlier. That God has this complex projection of thoughts that we call the phenomenal world. And I, I might say, well, that's my body will share in that. <laughs> my body is part of that complex structure of thoughts there that God is maintaining moment by moment. And he allows myself to interface with that reality. There aren't different substances going on here. There doesn't seem to be the traditional problem of the Cartesian dualism. How come matter and spirit? No, 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 no. We're talking about the same stuff, but being construed in different ways. The divine mind is thinking and giving of himself and allowing those thoughts and those individuated selves to enjoy this dualistic experience in what is for us, the real world. Okay, I think that's as far as I can go with this. Um, I don't know how close I've come or how to, to what, you, what you're thinking or how coherent I've been in that, but I'll just invite you to make a comment. What do you think? Am I close? <laughs> Far off? I, I, no, I, I just love this. I'm just listening kind of in awe. Uh, very beautiful way of articulating and unpacking a core idea. Um, as you put it, the idea is that God does not create, or I use the term source substance because I want to kind of yes. have a, a more neutral description for the purposes of this this project. Yes. Um, although I would identify it as God. I mean, that would be an appropriate yes. term. Sure. But that this source substance um, in a very significant way uses its own substance in order to make us the kinds of beings that can have thoughts and feelings. And I loved what you said there about the thoughts of God that's not enough to make us. You can't make selves out of thoughts. Hmm. Um, I don't think you can make selves out of feelings either. You can't feel a self into existence. It looks to me like the only possible way for even God himself to make selves is out of his own substance. And then uh, an additional thing that I, I want to kind of add to the picture is that the world, the phenomenal world, as you put it, isn't merely a world of thoughts either. Um, hmm. I, I kind of think of the thoughts as providing a kind of blueprint for laws of physics, hmm. but there's also the spatial contents of reality. Um, yeah. There's, you know, mountains and, and colors hmm. and all of those things. And I, I like that term, the phenomenal um, hmm. world, because the phenomenal world is a world of phenomena. Uh, experience is where that kind of phenomenal term points to. And so the idea here is that within the structure of God's mind is all the colors of consciousness, thoughts, spatial objects, um, categorically similar to spatial objects, spatial contents of our own dreams, except that our own dreams are kind of our own private territory, kind of our portion of reality that we have more dominion over. Um, even then, not 100%, right? Because dreams themselves are influenced in various ways. But that I, I just was just listening to syllable after syllable, line after line of what you're describing, because it's a way of taking, I would say, the heart of my proposal and then translating it into your own words. Hmm. Um, and so I'm listening to, okay, how is this, this translating? How is this reflecting? And it contains the essence of, of what I'm trying to suggest with leaving room for some further questions about how to interpret these things. But the basic idea yes. Yes. is that God has to use himself in some way to make us. And it doesn't follow that yes. we are not made. It doesn't follow no. that 
you know, we are, I mean, even that term God is so variable. Um, as I would listen to people use the term God, they use it in different ways. So there can be talking past each other. Um, but yeah. it, it leaves open some different theories. And I think it can actually be a kind of bridge building model that hmm. can account for what I would say is, you know, I have this quote from the apostle Paul, it's in him and whom we live and have our being. Yes. And what That's does that right. mean, right? Mm. You know, when Jesus is talking about that, his prayers that we be one, as he and the Father are one. Well, what does that mean? That mm. kind of oneness, you know, mm. there's a oneness mm. in relationship, but could there also be a kind of oneness in substance? Could there be a sense in which, as individuals, and I, I like how you put that, that there's a distinction between us. We're individuals experiencing states of limitation and growth. Um, we're individuals, but we're all connected in maybe a mm. more metaphysical way than mere metaphorical. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah. Now this Substance. this yeah. Well, this is this is where it becomes problematic when I talk to my Hindu friend because I, I I do feel uncomfortable because we can be talking about this in different ways and when one talks about one the one and how we might be of the same substance as God immediately I, I start to think in terms of oh dear is this moving into the territory of saying well maybe our salvation comes from realizing who we really are that we are part of God and all this and I'm I'm still saying well no I'm, I'm that's that's not the way I'm thinking here at all I still think my salvation comes speaking here, you know, from a Christian point of view, um, I know your book is more broad than that, but, um, yes. you know, it is my faith in Christ and his work on the cross. And, and this is where my, my salvation comes from, what he did there and my faith in what he did, you know. Um, however, as regards this question of ultimate being, I see the logic of ending up with saying God can only make selves like himself <laughs> that can be conscious and, and have free will etc by using himself and yeah but that does not mean i come back to this word individuated it is essential that we are really individuated from god and so i do see him as choosing and from each other as well. and from each other exactly and so i see him as yes. choosing to make me but not forming something out there with a bunch of atoms, you know, <laughs> but choosing to make me from himself within himself. And as I come back to this idea of the, of the logical partition, making a partition, and that's a giving. Yeah. And I am not God, and I never will be God, and my salvation depends upon Christ, etc. But I think it's a coherent view of who I am at this, <laughs> this most deep level. It's just logical coherence, really. And I don't think it's heretical. I don't think so. Um, although I, you know, I can yeah, see me, the me neither. Yeah, I mean, th yeah. There is this mm. this view is um, people have told me that, uh, especially in maybe Eastern forms of Christianity, this is a a view as well as in the West as well. Uh, it's I think part of the challenge of thinking about these things is we tend to have packages, right? And so mm. one mm. piece of a package can sort of remind us of other pieces. Mm. Um, and that totally makes sense, but I think it's also just helpful to see how there could be common ground um, between different traditions, yes. and that doesn't mean every piece of the packages, you know, get mixed or added. Exactly. Um, and if I could even just add one more kind of point here, because I have friends who talk about these, the, the term God, again, is, is, is tricky, because I think sometimes people from mm. different maybe cultures will use that term differently and maybe not even notice all the ways in which they're using them differently. And one thing that I've been thinking about too is 
you know, there, there's a sense in which within the Christian view, we would say that Jesus is God, right? We would say that Jesus is God, mm. but we would also make a distinction between um, God as son and God as father, right? Mm. And so, of course, this leads to all sorts of interesting debates and conversations about how to understand yeah. unity and diversity there. And I've heard some people, I'm not saying everybody, but some people use the term God to refer to certain attributes of God that actually remind me more of what I think Christians would mean by being in the image of God. So they're pointing to the imagio Dio as a set of attributes, but they might use the term God and a Christian might hear them saying, oh, the source consciousness, the one original and it's like, well, maybe that's not even what they mean, right? And <laughs> anyway, I, there's just a lot here even to explore in terms of how we're using the term God. And obviously, people have different meanings in their own minds. And this is one thing I just love to do is to see if we can separate our concepts mm-hmm. from kind of the core reality and see if we can sort of see more of that core reality so that it's not like a compromise or no. It's, it's almost like we're stretching ourselves and then inviting others to stretch themselves or we're like stretching exactly yes yeah yes exactly it is it's like a mental exercise where you are stretching it's getting broader and broader as you discover more things and find more commonality with other people but you still have this kind of borderline where where you you just will not cross that and in my case here i'm saying i will never say that i am god well you know i will never never say that my salvation now hold on but uh in mm. the image of god right Mm. if somebody's using the word god and all they mean by that is having a, uh, a nature, which they say is a divine nature. And then when you ask, what do you mean by divine nature? They list the attributes. And then, oh, the attributes they're listing is actually just what mm-hmm. you mean by being in the image of God. Okay. Then you could say that, right? But you could say that I am God on what you mean by God is what, what I hear you saying. <laughs> so, yeah. Right. Okay. Well, well, I would uh, two things about that is I would never say I am God because I think that would be immediately misunderstood. So what <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So I just wouldn't say that. Um, but also when I'm saying I am not God, I, I, what I am saying is I am not the person of God. I am a separate person and I always will be. One might say it's almost trivial to say that I'm made of the same stuff of God, perhaps according to this theory. Maybe I am. That's a kind of trivial, but very fascinating and coherent reality. But it's trivial as far as persons are concerned. I am not the person of God, and I never will be. And that's one of the things that worries me about Eastern thought, is is the notion that somehow one might become saved by realizing, you know, that you are one with ultimate reality. And I, you know, that's my line. There's no way. (laughs) My salvation comes from Christ, and well, the salvation issue. Yes, yeah. Well, they're related, yeah. aren't they? You know, um, yeah. Be- be- because in Eastern, the- you know, because my Hindu friend would say that salvation comes from realizing who you really are, and and you're saying here in the book, you know, who who are we? Who are we? But you're not. This process in the book is not finding salvation, is it? The nature. This is finding yeah. who you That's are the, the in relation to ultimate reality. The question of salvation is yet another thing. It's beyond that line. And that's not where I'm going with this discussion. Yeah. It's a pure being discussion, not a salvation discussion. I love that. Yeah, that's a really helpful distinction. Okay. Yeah, that's good. And um, I, I realize we're toward the end here, and I'm going to just take our little risk here. I, I'm just too curious to ask you. <laughs> Do you think uh, that Jesus would say that he is not the same person as God, thinking of God the Father? Or do you think that he would say that he is the same person as God? I'm just curious to, to hear kind of your thoughts about that. 
Do you, no, hold on. No. So are you asking me what he would have said when he was here 2,000 years ago in Palestine? Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, let's go for that one. Or or in a near-death experience, you know, if you meet him. <laughs> well, I think that will be that might be subtly different. Okay. Because then I would be meeting him, as it were, in the here and now, wouldn't I? And then he would know that I would be aware of Trinitarian thought. Um, so I would say that... Um, no, Jesus is not the same person as God the Father, but is the same God. <laughs> when I know that, that marks me as a Trinitarian straight away. Yeah. Well, then there yeah. there is an agreement there, right? Because you're not the same person as God. That's the line that I heard you drawing. Mm. But even Jesus is going to say he's not the same person, mm. um, right? So, okay, I, I apologize. No, 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 no true. <laughs> but that, I but I would also I I would also yes. expect him to say. But even though there is that that same pattern between us, you know, I'm not the same person as God, and Jesus said I'm not the same person as God. I think I would expect him also to say, but the way in which I am not I'm not the same person as the Father, but am God is different and higher than you ever will be yes. a distinct person and. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm trying to drive at. The, the, yes, yes. <laughs> very, it's very tricky to talk about. But uh, yeah, thank you for taking that risk with that particular one. Yeah. yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, this is just the kind of, I think, valuable, mm. let's say, risky on the edge. Yes. Uh, you know, risk in the sense of both how much time we have together as well sure. as just opening up big topics, right? Yes. Um, but yeah, I just really appreciate it this conversation with you is so so much fun yes really really enjoyed it thank you ever so much for having this conversation and uh, i'll just have to say here here it is um yes who are you really um a philosopher's inquiry into the nature and origin of persons by joshua rasmussen as you can hear i think it's an excellent book um it is extremely readable actually it does avoid jargon if there is jargon there it explains it in great detail it's it is rigorous but you know you, one can cope with it one can not be phased by this book it, it is a bit of hard work but it is really worth engaging with and you do end up introspecting very deeply about the nature of thoughts and feelings and the will and gently and, and creatively you are leading us towards i'll say possible understandings of who we really are as conscious beings in relation to the one who created us. And I think it's useful for everybody, mm. whether you're a believer in God or not, um, because it is about this deep introspective exploration that is open to all. So as I say, not easy stuff, but very, very much worth the effort. Um, who Are You Really? by Joshua Rasmussen, available from Intervarsity Press, ivpress.com, and generally online. And there will be links, of course, as usual, in the show notes. Dr. Rasmussen, thank you ever so much for coming on the show. I have really, really enjoyed this. It's been a delight. Thank you. This has just been so much fun. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, so thanks again to Dr. Rasmussen for coming back on the program. As it happens, after the conversation was over, I felt a little dissatisfied with that bit towards the end where we touched on Trinitarian matters. I felt that I hadn't quite managed to express what I was thinking in that moment, or, or rather, I hadn't managed to express the thoughts that I was trying to formulate in that moment on the fly, as it were. Um, I just needed a few more minutes to uh, mull things over. So I remained somewhat bothered by this over dinner after the interview. And I emailed Josh with my dinner-inspired ideas. And we had a little email exchange about it thereafter. So if you are interested to read what we had to say, 
about how the Trinity might relate to the kind of thinking explored in our conversation, then uh, please do visit the show notes where you will find that exchange reproduced with the kind permission, of course, of Dr. Rasmussen and uh, see what was rattling around in our minds that evening. Next time, I should be speaking again to Dr. Paul Marrick, who kindly came on the podcast back in 2020 to talk about the FLCCC Alliance and its Math Plus treatment protocol for COVID-19. Dr. Marrick, now retired, was formerly a tenured professor of medicine and chief of the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at East Virginia Medical School in Norfolk, Virginia, US. Um, This time, he's kindly agreed to come on and talk about the FLCCC's Eat Well Guide to Fasting and Healthy Eating and its Eye Care Guide to Managing Insulin Resistance, Metabolic Syndrome and Diabetes. Now, how much of that we'll cover? (laughs) I don't know, but uh, it should be an interesting interview nonetheless. That should be in about a fortnight from now, but as the schools have a half-term break in between, uh, it might end up being posted three weeks from now, but I'll see how that goes. So all that having been said, it only remains for me to say show notes of this program, as I've said, can be found at themindrenewed.com, podcast music by the brilliant Anthony Rajakov, attribution non-commercial share alike 4.0 international. You have been listening to me, Julian Charles, and my guest, Dr. Joshua Rasmussen, and I very much look forward to speaking to you again in the near future. <laughs>